I'll be reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do or do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning do not let your adorning be external, but the, let the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold or jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shine on forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you after two weeks off. Really appreciate um, Tyler and Hunter preaching for me. I was really appreciative of that. I listened to their sermons yesterday. One of them was very good. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> they were both awesome. They were both great. Um, it was a really good thing. I appreciate those brothers and everybody else. I know in uh, in, in a DNA with, with three other brothers, and we're going through 1 Corinthians right now, and at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul starts to say how appreciative he is of everybody in his, in his ministry, and, so, and I was able to, to jot down many names uh, in that application portion of people I'm very, very thankful for in this church um, that enabled us to do that for the past two weeks, so really appreciate that. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for um, just the goodness of the gospel that we get to repeat over and over and over again as we sing these uh, beautiful songs that are rich uh, in biblical uh, truth um, that remind us that it's not about us, but it's only about Jesus. And so I pray that um, that, that, that message would continue on now um, through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would give my, my voice strength. Um, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear uh, and hearts to receive and minds to understand what you have to show us from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just take a little pastoral privilege here, since I'm up here and you can't stop me. Um, but two and a half weeks ago, or three weeks ago now, uh, Tara and I celebrated 20 years of marriage. Yeah. So, which is a huge accomplishment, uh, mainly for Tara. Um, because I'm not an easy person to live with, and that 20 years is a long time. But even so, Tara has exemplified what it means to be a helpmate, uh, of what uh, is, is kind of a visible demonstration, uh, at least to me, of what uh, the idea of complementarianism looks like in a marriage. Uh, and I know, I know in a lot of ways, you, I'm the one you see up front. I'm the one that you uh, listen to preach week in and week out. I'm the one... Um, typically that you'll sit down with one-on-one. Um, I get most of the sweet and encouraging notes and text messages from you guys, which I'm very, very thankful for. Keep those coming. 
But I can honestly say that for all the thanks I receive, I could do none of this without Tara by my side. None of it would, would happen. And I've said it before, um, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it over and over again. There is no one in this church that could do the ministry that Tara has at CTK. Nobody. It's not an open volunteer position. Most of you probably wouldn't volunteer for a position like that. But Tara has it, just out of default, because she's married to me. So her calling as a pastor's wife, and, and, and any pastor's wife, is unique, it's difficult, and it's not for the faint of heart. So when I talk to, to, uh, to younger brothers who want to be in the ministry, and they're married, one of the first questions I ask is, is your wife called to this? Because if she's not, then you might want to find something else to do. It's not for the faint of heart. And Tara does it well. Well, we're talking about marriage this morning, and I know that, that both Tara and I would say that on top of all of that, being in ministry together and all of those things, that marriage is both the hardest thing that we've ever done, but it's also the best thing that we've ever done. The hardest because we've voluntarily entered into a covenant with another sinner. And you know the more sinners you have together in a room, the more sin you will have in one space. So it's a constant battle at times, because that's true. It's no wonder that most marriages, 50%, I think is still the number, end in divorce. It's why so many are waiting longer to get married. And it's why some vow never to get married. So Peter... Here in our text, as he continues to instruct his Christian readers how to live life before a watching world, he now turns his attention to marriage. And he turns his attention to marriage to show that, yes, the gospel even impacts your marriage, and it's to be lived out in such a way that the light of Christ shines clearly through it. So much so that people, including your spouse will come to know Jesus because of it. So three aspects I want to highlight this morning from our text. The first point is, is, is going to be found outside of 1 Peter, but applies directly to it. But the first point is uh, understanding that marriage is God's doing. It's God's doing. And then we'll come back to the text and see the wife's calling and then the husband's calling. So God's doing the wife's calling and the husband's calling. So if you have a Bible, turn back to the scripture reading to Genesis chapter 2 that Mackenzie read for us. And I had these verses read because I, I think it's important for us to see where it is that Peter is, is pulling his ideas concerning marriage. And even as bedrock and clear as the biblical teaching on marriage is, so many times within the church, it's easier to just change along with the culture concerning matters. And it's easier to do that than it is to stick to what God's Word actually says. And particularly with marriage, is understanding that God's design for marriage is the design for marriage. God's design for marriage is the design for marriage. It's not one option among many other options. So that means 
Homosexual marriage is not marriage. Uh, Thruples, which is three people in a relationship, is not marriage. Polygamy is not marriage. I'm wondering how Allie just signed Thruple. That was all I was wondering. (laughs) That was distracting. But polygamy is not marriage. Soligamy, which is uh, marrying yourself, which is a real thing, is not marriage. Open marriage, like Will and Jada Smith, is not marriage. Marrying inanimate objects is not marriage. True thing. Why are these things not marriage? Well, because all of these are distortions of God's good design we find in the Bible. Now look at Genesis chapter 2. And I'm not going to exposit this text, but I'm going to highlight one verse that touches on an important aspect of God's original design that I believe Peter is building upon in chapter 3 of his letter. Because Genesis chapter 2 is where we find the blueprint for and the beginnings of marriage. But I want us to look at Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So I want to make clear what this means when God says, I will make him a helper fit for him, because this will be important when we go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Because I, I believe this idea of helper has been misconstrued because people who call themselves Christian have abused it heavily. So let me explain that this word doesn't mean, it does not mean that the wife is a slave to her husband and is meant to serve him hand and foot. That's not what the word helper means. In its original language, the word for helper is actually two Hebrew words, azer konegdo. Azer konegdo. So what is that? Well, azer, the word azer was often used in a war context, and it was a word that was used to communicate military help. But throughout the Old Testament, this this word azer is used often to refer to God. God showing up like an army to defend his people. Like Gandalf on the hill in a sea of light. So the idea here in verse 18 is that Adam cannot do it alone. He needs a partner to help him. But not just an azer, but an azer konegdo. So this word konegdo is a Hebrew word that is actually the combination of two English words, like and opposite. So you bring those two words together and it creates konegdo, which means like, opposite. So, So God is saying that Adam needs someone like him, a human being, someone like him, but the opposite of him. Now, I know this has all sorts of implications concerning marriage in our culture and and, and, and just the whole kind of transgender debate and conversation going on, and I'm not going to dive into all of that this morning. But I'm sure, also, it changes some 
presuppositions and paradigms that you have had about this phrase as well. But for the sake of what we're talking about today, we need to understand that this word isn't saying the woman is the man's subordinate. Rather, it's a word that communicates correspondence and partnership in a marriage. Uh, There's a famous Hebrew professor um, named Robert Alter. He's done several kind of translations of Old Testament texts, and he's at USC Berkeley. But he says this of this particular word. He says says of uh, of this word that it's a notoriously difficult word to translate, but it means something far more powerful than just helper. Rather, it means something closer to life saver. Because the phrase is only used elsewhere of God. And when you need need Him to come through for you desperately, like in a military sense, you need God to come and save your life. Deuteronomy 33.26 uses the same word. When it says, There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help. So the same word that describes an aspect of God is describing who a woman is to be. So Eve is, a, in a sense, a life giver to Adam. She's Adam's ally. Because it takes both of them to sustain life. And they will both need to fight together. So what this means is that the man and woman are to partner together to fulfill God's vision for the world. And for the sake of this mission of fulfilling God's vision, God gives marriage. A biological man and a biological woman holding fast to each other in a one flesh union. So in general... Thinking about where we are now in our own society, Christian marriage is a subversive relationship. To marry one person and to stay married to them for 20 or more years is to say to all other persons that you are no longer available. To marry another person is to say, whether you believe it or not, that marriage is a deeper level of commitment and love than a dating relationship or even a friendship with another person could ever be. It's to recognize the difference that marriage brings to one's life as well. So leaving your parents, as the Bible tells us, and cleaving only to your spouse is subversive language. It sets marriage up as the most important relationship in a married person's life. Not the relationship with your parents. God says, leave your parents and cleave to your spouse. Not the relationship with your friends. Not even the relationship with your children. And so Peter uses marriage to teach this subversive reality, not only of Christians in marriage, but also the gospel lived out before a watching world. Remember, the churches that Peter is writing to find themselves in a a Greek-Roman society that is hostile toward 
anything that is different from the norm of their culture. And Christianity is just that. Christianity bucks against everything that uh, Rome or, or Greek culture has. It goes against the grooves and, and sets in place a different way of life and by doing so, subverts the traditional sh- social structures of the day, which continues to happen through the Christian church. And Peter shows us this through the marital relationship. So now that we have this foundation, let's move into our text in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you're in Genesis 2, flip back over with me to 1 Peter 3. And we'll begin with the wife's calling in verses 1 through 6. Now you may have already recognized that the passage today spends way more time addressing the wife than it does the husband. Six verses to one verse. So before you start thinking that this is a, uh, an episode of the Netflix documentary, Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey... Um, you need to understand that the reason for this, the reason so much time is spent here, is that during this time period, uh, women converted to Christianity in way more heavily uh, number, numbers than males did. So there's way more women who are Christian than men at this particular time. Which is an argument, in my opinion, against those who believe that Christianity is such an oppressive religion uh, amongst women. Women were flooding to the church at this particular time. So one reason for the slow conversion of men has everything to do with trying to please man. Is that husbands had more to lose socially from converting to an unpopular minority religion... Uh, like Christianity. They would lose business opportunities and important relationships within Greek society that they depended on. So this just leaves believing wives with unbelieving husbands, which is why Peter sympathizes with and instructs wives for six verses and husbands only one. So in verse 1, Peter begins by using the word likewise. Or maybe you and your translation have in the same way. So he does this in order to link this instruction to wives back to the instruction that he gave to slaves in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Let me just read that for us to give us a refresher. So looking at chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then verse 1 of chapter 3, Likewise, wives. So let me just make clear that Peter does not link the wife's calling back to the slave's calling in order to kind of hint at the wife being a slave to her husband. That is not why Peter does that. The reason he links the two together, and then later in verse 7, the husband is linked in as well. He does this to say that while you have been changed by the gospel, this does not necessarily change your current situation. Therefore, you are called to live a certain way within that current situation. And these wives that he is speaking to here are women, Christian women, who are married now to non-Christian men. So Peter is saying, this doesn't change your situation. This doesn't mean this is a get-out-of-jail-free card here. This is something that you are called to endure now. Now this is significant because both Greek philosophy and Roman culture required order in the household as the foundation and order in the state. So if, if, a, if a man did not have control over his wife and his household, that uh, spoke, uh, spoke that, that, he was, that the state could be in danger because his family was not in order. So an ordered household equaled an ordered state according to Greek and Roman philosophy. So here's an excerpt from a writer at this time named Plutarch. Some of you might be familiar with him. But he wrote, uh, not long after Peter wrote uh, his letters, but he wrote in uh, his little booklet here, in his, uh, it's called Advice to Bride and Groom. So if you needed some marriage counseling, Plutarch was your man. So this is what he wrote. He says, So it is with women also. If they subordinate themselves to their husbands, they are commended. But if they want to have control, they cut a sorrier figure than the subjects of their control. And control ought to be exercised by the men over the women, not as the owner has control over a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body, by entering into her feelings and being knit to her through good will. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Because Peter here is instructing behavior that would be approved by the culture at large. The, the distinction being the, the motivation of this behavior. So Peter is not urging Christian wives to model their lives on the traditional values of Greek and Roman culture. In chapter 1, verse 18, Peter's already condemned this as an empty way of life. So it's the example of Christ that Peter is pointing to, not the culture that Peter calls his readers to follow here, which is found in chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, die to our own way, and live to righteousness. So Peter in a masterful move, both upholds and subverts the social order of his day. 
And he gives a couple of examples of how women are to do this. The first being in verse 3. Look there with me. That says, Do not let your adorning be external to the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now I'm sure some of you have heard this these verses as an argument for modesty amongst women today. Modest is hottest, you know, you know all that, right? Or now you do, at least. <laughs> but at face value, this sounds like what Peter is talking about. You should dress a certain way so you don't draw attention to yourself. But if you just dig a little deeper, you begin to see Peter is more concerned with apologetic efforts here more than anything else. Just to give some cultural background and context, during this, this time period, if a married woman were to leave her house without her husband, and she was adorned with makeup and jewelry and braided hair, um, this would have signaled that she was not just going on a shopping trip, but that she was out looking for someone besides her husband. Because outward adornment and and makeup and all of these things during this time period were perceived as instruments of seduction and deceit. So Peter's instruction uh, against these things amongst Christian women makes more sense uh, when you understand what is happening within the culture. So these women who were married to non-Christian men, if they were going to leave their house to go to a worship gathering, which is something they would have had to to have done, Peter is saying, look, there's already enough attention being drawn to the church right now, and we are not looked upon in a favorable light amongst our our society, amongst the people in our city. And so we don't want to bring further suspicion and only make matters worse for us. So Peter is saying to these women, Hold to these cultural standards. Not for the glory of the state, but for the witness of the church. So the second principle Peter gives to Christian wives here is that they remain quiet. So this has definitely gotten a bad rap, especially uh, our our brother Paul uh, in his letters when he he speaks of these things. Uh, But it's also been used in an abusive manner uh, within the church. I know of churches in our area that will not allow women to speak in the church service. But Peter was not saying that women were not allowed to speak or have an opinion or share something that might be helpful to the, to the body at large. What he's saying, within the context of this particular marital relationship, a, non, a, a, a believing woman married to a non-Christian husband is that instead of using your words to try and convince your husband or nag him to come to church and give his life to Christ, Peter says instead, live this life out before him and before a watching world without saying a word. So Peter is saying to these believing wives, that this is not only how you live in a culture that despises Christianity, that sees it as a threat, that is is, uh, very suspicious of anything that is not having to do with the state, 
But this is also how you are to live as a believer in a household where your husband could essentially think and believe in the exact same way. So Peter is hopeful here towards these wives. He believes that a Christian's a Christian wife's continued submission to their own husband not only shields Christianity from suspicion and accusation as a social evil, but is also clearly motivated by evangelistic intent. Which the end goal of evangelistic intent always being the glory of God. So in verse 5, if you notice, Peter points to Sarah, Abraham's wife, who we just learned about in Genesis in, the, in our study in Genesis back in the winter time. Um, but he points at Abraham's wife specifically as an example of one of the holy women, he says. And the key phrase here that, that Sarah and these women about Sarah and, and these women is, they put their hope in God. They put their hope in God. And that is what Peter wants these believing wives to see, that they put their hope in God. God. So so this comment is helpful because it informs us that these women did not submit to their husbands because they believed them to be superior to them, intellectually or spiritually, and say, oh, woe is me, I'm, I'm an idiot, I know nothing about anything in the world or anything that's in the church, and so I need to to be under my husband and to submit myself to him. This is not the reason Peter tells them to do that. This comment says that they submitted because they were confident that God would reward all of those who put their hope in him. This is why they submit. And because this is the ultimate end of the wife's living, the husband will then witness his wife's gentle and quiet spirit and may be one to Christ without a single word being spoken. Peter is confident in that. St. Augustine tells of his mother uh, Monica's faithful witness to his pagan father uh, Patricius. So uh, this, is what, this is what Augustine wrote of his, his mom, Monica. He said, She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. So essentially... What Peter tells these faithful women is to live in the same way that Christ lived while on this earth. That he was despised and rejected. Isaiah tells us that that no one even wanted to look at him. There was nothing about him that drew attention to Jesus. He was not entirely listened to. He 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 was not even looked at by the broader culture. Yet he quietly wins our redemption at the cross. And that's who Peter says these wives need to model themselves after. So in a lot of ways, these six verses are not just for the wife, but they're for the husband as well. Although not directly. But this couldn't have been lost on the husband during this time because he sees Peter affirming the man's authority 
And also at the same time, the husband sees in this affirmation that his wife's submission is no longer driven by Roman society and Greek moral philosophy, but instead by the authority and example of the crucified and risen Christ. So this is a woman who has been changed by the gospel. Not the culture and not the social norms of the day. And they are to model this gospel to their husbands, who Peter now addresses in verse 7. Just lost my space, my spot. There we go. Went to my sermon from last time. I was like, wow, this, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> we go here. <laughs> so Peter, in verse 7, turns his attention uh, to husbands. And notice that, uh, like I said earlier, Peter, Peter addresses the husbands the same way he addressed slaves and wives by using the word likewise, or in the same way which indicates to, to his readers that, that husbands are not supposed to live exactly like Peter is telling the wives to live, but he, he's, it indicates to the husbands that they are to live a certain way. Slaves are to live this way, wives are to live this way, and husbands are to live this way. So this also indicates that Peter saw that, that husband and wife are both called to follow Christ in humble and compassionate love, Towards each other. There's something else to consider, because Peter primarily instructs wives in verses 1 through 6, uh, whose husbands are not yet Christians. He is speaking to, to wives in those, in those six verses uh, who have pagan husbands, specifically. So the question has to be asked, is Peter now addressing husbands whose wives are not Christians? Or is this Peter instructing Christian husbands and wives in the new reality they both now believe uh, as believers in Christ. Well, I think it could be a little bit of both, but I believe that the latter is what Peter is actually getting at here, that he is speaking to Christian husbands. Because, and I say that because of the language that Peter uses here when he says, um, referring back to the wives, since they, your wife, uh, they, wives, are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that's Christian language that Peter is speaking to these husbands here in verse 7. Peter is saying to them, because Christ has changed you individually, he has also changed you maritally, in your marriage relationship as a husband. So wives, live in submission to your husbands, and husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. So what we have here in this brief instruction to husbands are a couple of application points for them. First is to live with your wife in an understanding way. And I believe this is one of the most important lessons a husband uh, should seek to grasp in his marriage. I don't have it fully grasped. But I think it's one of the most important things that a husband should grasp in his marriage is living with their life in an understanding way, which literally means to live with your wife according to knowledge. 
This means you are getting to know that person that you are spending months and year upon year with. And that never stops. Ed Clowney, in his commentary here, says, The husband must dwell with his, life as, with his wife as one who knows her needs, who recognizes the delicacies of her nature and feelings. I asked my wife uh, what, what she thought this verse meant. This is why we were falling asleep last night. I was trying to catch her at a weak moment. Um, she, her first response was empathy. Showing empathy towards your wife. Which is exactly what Peter's getting at here. Which is exactly what Ed Clowney just said. So this is important, men. How well do you know your wife? Are you seeking to understand her? Are you seeking to live with her in an understanding way? Do you view her as your Azer Connecto? Your helper. Your, your like opposite. So the second thing Peter says to the husbands is to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I know that can, be, that can be offensive language whenever we use that word weak. Um, and since we already established um, that, that women are not inferior to men intellectually or spiritually, in, this, in the context of 1 Peter, this is primarily understood as, as either or physical weakness. There's definitely physical weakness. Um, but it also can mean socially weak at this particular time and place in this culture. Um, we don't really have that problem here in the 21st century, but we do, or, or that sort of weakness now uh, in the 21st century, but we do still have that physical weakness um, that, that, that truly does exist. Um, so here, I believe that Peter is indirectly addressing the idea of physical abuse in marriage. So the way you honor your wife the way you honor women, because Peter does transition the language here a little bit to not just referring to wives, but also refer, referring to women in general. So the way you honor your wife and the way you honor women at large is by not abusing the, the authority that has been given to you by God over those women in your life. And the reason for this is that the man recognizes, this is this is amazing and wonderful. The, the reason why Peter says, this is why you don't do this. The reason why you don't do this is because the, the, your wife and the women in your life are co-heirs with you in Christ. That is why you don't abuse. That the grace that you have received is the same grace that she has received, if she's a believer. Now you have to understand that this was a radical teaching in the first century. In first century culture, a wife was never seen in any way, shape, or form, socially, physically, uh, spiritually, in any way, as an equal to her husband, ever. The, the wife at that particular time, if your husband, if your husband worshipped multiple gods, the wife, by the law of the state, was required to worship those gods. 
So what we see here in Peter's words, and what Peter is saying, is that the gospel levels the playing field. It levels it. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, these words. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. The gospel completely disrupts the social order. It breaks down all earthly paradigms that we seek to create in our world. And this, Peter says, is the motivation for honor toward women. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, a way in which you can know that you're not doing this, men, is to look at your prayer life. I love that. I love that Peter's just like, This is going to affect your prayers if you live this way. So a simple, a couple of simple questions. Uh, Men, is is your prayer life right now hindered? Meaning when you go to God and pray, it feels like God isn't listening to you. It feels like your your prayers are, are not even reaching the ceiling of your home. Are they hindered? And if you can say yes to that, or you're feeling some unrest because of those questions, then you may want to check in on how your wife is doing and how you're treating her. And that might be a hard conversation. But what Peter is saying is that your spiritual health and vitality is at stake here. So the gospel is the motivator and example here. Nothing else. And this is where this applies directly to all of us, married or not. Because it would be short-sighted to only see these verses as a manual for marriage. And even sinful to use these verses to oppress women or to perpetuate the the purity culture which, which started back when I was in high school. Because when we read this in its original historical settings amongst very real people, these verses then become a call to to transformation of culture in and through the Christian community we know as the church. It then allows the the church to become this alternate society or this this city within a city, as Tim Keller would say, that's, that's based on God's redemptive plan. It's a community that points to true reality. In every relationship, marriage, friendship, dating relationships, or relationships with those outside these walls who are not yet Christians... Jonathan Edwards, um, I've been reading his, his little book called The End for Which God Created the World During Vacation. And he makes the argument that all things a person does that are good, so Christians and non-Christians, all things a person does that are good ultimately lines up with the good at which God himself intends in his creation. So if you're not a Christian and you're doing something that is good in the eyes of the Lord, you are actually, unbeknownst to you, uh, doing something that lines up 
with the goodness that is found in God himself. It's not benefiting you in any way. But it is true. So as the church, taking this same idea, the Christian community, we are called, because we understand that to be true, we are called to do the most good. To, to, to consciously reflect God's glory amongst each other in our marriages, yes, but also in our life together as brothers and sisters. Because Peter is saying here to the church from the past couple of weeks and this week as well, Peter is saying here, the church may be small, but the world has its eyes on you. The world is watching. And our calling is to give them something to look at that is hopeful. That is counter to the culture in which they are swimming in daily. We don't want to give them something that's the same. We want to give them an alternate reality in which the center is not ourselves but God. We want them to truly give them a subversive community. A community that is bucking against, not flowing with the culture at large. So to be subversive means, just a technical definition, seeking or intended to subvert an established system or institution. And the reason why I say that we want to be a subversive community uh, and have subversive marriages in this culture is because that's exactly what Jesus did when he died to save us. That was a subversive act. When our king chooses a cross instead of a throne. And this subverts everything. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for... um, Thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for all of those in this place who are married, uh, both new and and old, um, who have been married many, many years and and maybe just a few months. God, we know that that is your doing, and it is uh, a declaration of the gospel, of Christ laying down his life for his bride, the church. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to have these uh, marriages Um, that are subversive to the culture that we live in. That we would paint a picture of what it means to have true uh, biblical uh, marriages. That we would fulfill the roles that God has given to us as, as wives and as husbands, and that we would do that in a way that is loving uh, toward each other and a witness to um, the gospel in our lives. God, help us as a community at large, as a Christian community, as the church, a local church here in Augusta, to be this sort of community as well. That the love that we have for each other as brothers and sisters um, would be a declaration of the gospel to a watching world and do as Jesus prayed, that they would give glory to God because of what they see. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.